All right, so for today, the lesson is on, this is lesson number seven. This is on Jesus Christ, our Savior, uh, on the gospel. What we're going to focus on today is mostly just the life of Christ and some of the implications of that. Later, I think it's in, in, two, other, in two more lessons, we're going to talk about justification, the forgiveness of sins, how we're saved. So we will get to that uh, later, but this is just on the person and work of Jesus. So um, th- this is the, the big question of how are we saved? So we finished all of the talk of the law. We talked about good works. Uh, we said that every man-made religion in the world teaches essentially the same thing, that we're saved by our good works, our behavior, or our abilities. And uh, so, for example, the major religions, Judaism, uh, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, even the the minor religions and cults uh, like Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, Scientologists, uh, they all teach uh, that we are saved by some sort of works. Now, it's different works. So they have a different definition of what work should be done, when you should fast, what you should abstain from, the things you should do, where you should go, things like that. But at the end of the day, they're all works. They're all things that you do. So they're saved by keeping certain rules and laws. But Christianity uh, is the only religion that teaches that we're saved by faith in Christ who kept the law for us. Uh, We see this in Romans 10, 4, where it says this, Christ is the end of the law, that everyone who has faith may be justified. So that when when you go through the Ten Commandments, you go through all of the law, you see what it requires and demands of you. At the very end, there is standing Christ who has fulfilled it for us. And that that everyone, that's what the text says, uh, Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law, that everyone who has faith may be justified. So that is saved. Uh, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, uh, for it is written, cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. So that uh, Christ receives the penalty that we were supposed to receive. Uh, He receives it. Uh, Acts 16.31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So that it doesn't say be a good person, uh, behave a certain way. It simply says, believe in the Lord Jesus and that in in that faith, uh, having faith in him is what saves. Uh, So essentially, there are only, even though there are thousands of different teachings and groups uh, and different religions in the world, there really are only two religions in the world. Uh, There are religions of the law, and the true religion of the gospel. Either a religion says you save yourself or Christianity that says that God has saved you. Uh, And that's the difference. So I want to get into that and talk about what does it mean to, uh, well, who is Jesus? And then we'll talk about what what it means to believe in him and what that requires. Um, The name of Jesus, let's look at Matthew chapter 1, 20 through 21. Okay, um, so starting at verse 20, it says, But as he considered these things, 
So Joseph is the he here. Uh, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Uh, The reason he would be afraid is because Mary was pregnant and uh, and they would be able to um, to kill her for being an adulterer uh, because they weren't married. She wasn't married and Joseph wasn't married yet. They were betrothed. But he says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So I I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, The point here is that Mary and Joseph didn't name Jesus. God did. He named himself. Uh, And he delivers this message through the angel, through the angel Gabriel. And he says, uh, she will bear son and you shall call his name, that you're you're going to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Um, A couple of things here. Um, What is the relationship between the name Jesus here and he will save his people from their sins? The 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 word here between them is for or because. So how does that follow? Why is it that you call him Jesus? Because, well, the reason you're call, you need to call him Jesus is because he'll save his people from their sins. Well, how does that follow? Well, um, the, the word or the name Jesus in Greek is very common. Um, in Greek, it's Jesus. Uh, in Hebrew, it's Joshua. So anyone who has the name Joshua in, in the scriptures, it's the same name, Jesus and Joshua. In English, we have a difference, but it, we, we don't see that difference. Um, uh, in, in Greek, uh, it is Joshua, or Joshua, sorry, Jesus is Joshua in Greek, right? It's the same thing. But so then what does the Hebrew name Joshua mean? Well, Joshua is the combining of two Hebrew words. Um, th- the first is Yah which is an abbreviation for Yahweh, which is the proper name of God, and Shua in Hebrew, which means saves. So the name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves, God saves. Um, so in, in, in this text, Matthew one twenty one, uh, he says, the angel says, she will bear a son. So, Look at this. She will bear a son. Now, this is fascinating because um, they have no pregnancy tests. They also have no um, uh, way to determine the sex of the baby before the baby's born. They have no idea. So this is like a minor prophecy included in this major prophecy. So there's this. So before uh, the baby's actually born, the angel reveals the sex of the baby, that the baby's going to be a son. And then that you'll call him, his name, Jesus. This is an imperative, a command. And then here is the major prophecy. Because he will save his people from their sins. Um, and that this is, in fact, uh, the, the very purpose, the, the main thing that the angel came to reveal. Um, now, I want to talk about this. This is fascinating. Uh, who is the he that the angel refers to? says that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he 
will save his people from their sins. Um, is the he, the name Jesus, when they heard the name Yeshua, they're thinking immediately of what it means. They, Mary and Joseph, uh, they hear Yahweh saves. So they say, well, she'll bear a son and she'll call him his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Well, who's the he? Is the he referring to Yahweh who saves his people? Or is it referring to the baby who will save God's people? Uh, and the answer is yes, both. Yahweh will save his people from their sins. This baby will save his people from their sins because Yahweh is this baby. This baby is God himself. And, and the thing is that Mary and Joseph uh, would have known this already. They hear it clearer than we do, uh, the, even the, than we do in the English, even in the Greek. Um, they, they heard this and they knew what was happening. Okay, Acts chapter 4 verse 12 tells us about the significance of the name of Jesus. It says uh, that there is salvation in no one else, for there's no one other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So no one else can save people from their sins. Only, uh, only Jesus can. Uh, John 4.42 says that we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So I want to talk about that too. When the angel says um, she will bear a son, he will save his people from their sins. Well, who are his people? Are his people uh, the Jews? Are his people Christians? Uh, and the answer is no. He's not talking about the Jews. He's not talking about Christians or believers. Uh, Jesus is the savior of the entire world. He is the savior of all. Um, there's salvation in no one else and that he's the savior of the world. You can look up also, I think, 1 John 2, 2 and uh, uh, John three sixteen and a couple other verses on this, that his people are the ones he made. Um, so we'll talk about that more later. Okay, so that's the name of Jesus, which literally means Yahweh saves. Now I want to talk about the title Christ. So Christ is not a name or a proper name, but it's a title or an office. So for example, I'm Pastor Rojas. Um, that's not my name. It's the title. So pastor's title. Uh, it's funny seeing little children um, realize that's not my first name. Uh, and they call me Mr. Pastor Rojas. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but the idea, so there's the confusion, is that they're confusing the title with the name. Well, people do this with the name of Christ. They say, well, Jesus Christ. Christ is his, his part of his name. No, it's a title. Kind of like you would have an officer or deputy smith or something. So the title of Jesus, Jesus' title is Christ. So we call him Christ Jesus or Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ. Um, we drop the the. Um, where do we get this from? What does it mean to be, to have the title or office of Christ? Well, I want to show you this text, Acts 10, 32. It says, um, wait, that's not the right text. Hmm. Sorry, I, I have the wrong text here. Uh, the text I'm referring to says says this, uh, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Uh, let me find this text quickly. 
Oh, 1038. Whoops, I have that marked wrong. Um, <clears throat> okay, uh, 1038 says uh, this, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now, the word here, anointed, uh, that's the word we want to focus on. In Greek, it's creo, um, which means to anoint. And that's a verb. So creo is to, to anoint someone. But the noun form of that is Christos, is one who is anointed or an anointed one. So, so that's what the name Christ, or the title Christ means. It means one who is anointed. Well, what does anoint mean? Uh, it means to choose or to appoint somebody. So then you say, well, okay, then this is Jesus. He was chosen, appointed, but to do what? What was he chosen for? Uh, Luke twenty two twenty two tells us this. Well, Jesus himself says this. Um, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So this is towards the end of his life um, at, the, at the Last Supper. Verse 22 then says, For the Son of Man goes, he's speaking of himself, goes as it has been determined. Um, so that there is something that is determined for him, for, for Jesus uh, to endure. He was appointed to endure something. And what that is, is we see this later, to be betrayed. That is to, to be uh, sacrificed and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, now, I want to go back uh, quickly to Genesis. And I know we've, we've spent a lot of time in Genesis, but I think it's very important. Um, the question I want to bring up is, when was Jesus... Uh, when was it revealed that Jesus was appointed to do this? That, uh, that God chose Jesus? Um, when was the gospel first preached? And it was actually in Genesis. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Whoops. Let me remove these, <clears throat> these highlights. Okay, so we've gone over this a few times, but in chapter 3, we've seen... Uh, the fall of man, Adam and Eve, into sin. And then there is uh, God's response to this. Starting at verse 14, the Lord God, here in these, in these sections, he talks to the serpent, then he talks to the woman, and then he talks to Adam. This first section is him talking to the serpent. So this is God talking to the devil, and he says, because you have done this, that is tempted Adam and Eve to fall into sin and to disobey him, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Which this seems to indicate that, the, that serpents uh, were, had legs before. They were more that they had uh, some sort of legs or appendages in this way. But that as a result of the fall, the curse is that they would crawl on their bed, belly and eat dust all of their life. Now we get into 15 and it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head 
and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, the word, it's, this is a bad translation. In Hebrew, it's better. He shall crush your head and you shall crush his heel. Uh, so I want to talk about this verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that he'll put enmity between you and the woman? Well, um, think of it this way. You can only be, there's no middle ground. You can only be friends or enemies. Um, now take Adam and Eve, you put them in the center here, and then you have God over here, and then you have the devil on this side. When God created Adam and Eve, um, here's Adam and Eve, uh, God was friends with Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve were friends with God. And the enemy was the devil. So they were on the same team, God and, and man. In the fall, uh, Adam and Eve went over to the devil's side. And they were friends with the devil, which means they were enemies with God. So uh, they being friends with God, when they sinned, they went and joined the devil's side. They were friends with the devil, which means God was their enemy. This is why they ran away from him when they, they heard him after they sinned. So if God now says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to the devil. What does that mean? He's saying, okay, man and, uh, uh, man and the devil are friends and they're on the same team. But what I'm going to do is make you guys enemies again, which means you guys will come over to my side. That God and man who are now enemies will be friends again. And the devil will be our enemy. This is, this is the promise. He says, uh, you, you who are friends with the devil, I will make you enemies, and which means I will be your friend again between you and the woman. And then he goes on further and he says this, um, the, the next words here, and between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, so w what's, what's happening here is that her offspring, Paul tells us later in the New Testament, uh, that her offspring is, this is a singular word. This is seed. Uh, it's better translated as, as seed. Well, the woman doesn't have seed in her. Um, so already they understand that there is going to be uh, a woman or there, there's going to be a seed or a child that comes from the woman, only from the woman and not of a natural union between uh, a man and a woman. Okay, so between your offspring and her offspring. Then it says this, he shall bruise your head or he shall crush your head and you shall crush his heel. Meaning that the devil is going to crush the heel of this baby, of this offspring, the seed, which is, who is Jesus, which is the cross. But while crushing the heel of this baby, of this child, this person, uh, in this, at the same time, he's going to crush the head of that serpent that is the devil so already here this is the first uh, mention of the gospel in all of the bible it's genesis three fifteen. you should remember this uh, in latin it's called the proto evangelium that's the first gospel so that's what we see there already um, so when christ is appointed he is determined he's anointed to do something this is the thing he's been anointed and appointed and chosen 
and determined to do, which is make God and man come together again. So that the mediator between God and man is Christ. And he makes us enemies with, uh, with the devil. Okay, I want to move on quickly. Are there any questions so far? No? Okay, I want to move on uh, quickly to a couple of other things. What do the scriptures say about Jesus? First uh, John 5.20 says that Jesus is the true God. Um, he's not a God or part of God, but he is the true God. Uh, another text is John 20, 28. And this is fascinating. This text is beautiful. Um, we have Jesus resurrect. He appears to his disciples. Uh, one of them was not there the first time he appeared to them. His name was Thomas. And Thomas was skeptical. And he says, unless I see my Lord, and I, and I put my fingers in his wounds and in his side, I'm never going to believe. Well, then Jesus appears to him and shows him his, his side. He shows him his wounds. And the first words out of Thomas's mouth, uh, the, John 20, 28 says, Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. And this is stunning. This is the most remarkable confession we've seen. Uh, people will object to this and they'll say, look, well, people back then in the New Testament, they believed in many gods. So he's not really saying anything much. He says uh, the the Greeks and the Romans, uh, they called Caesar God. Um, so, so this isn't a big deal. So you're making a big deal out of this. That's not true. Uh, the Greeks and Romans were polytheists. So they believed in many gods and they even called Caesar God. That's true. But Thomas was not a Greek or a Roman. Thomas was a Jew. And if there's one thing that the Jews hold to, that they've been holding to and confessing, the one creed they've been saying the whole time, it is the Shema, and which is Hebrew for this. The Lord our God is one. So Deuteronomy 6, 4, that's the Shema. And it says, the Lord our God is one. All of the Jews believe this. There are not multiple gods in the minds of Jews. There's, that's blasphemous. That's, that's a lie. So this is what Thomas is. He's a Jew who believes there is only one God. So this means that when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, it means that he is calling Jesus Yahweh. He is calling Jesus God himself, not a God, not one of many gods. He is saying you are Yahweh. You are the God of all creation. E even more, Jesus didn't correct Thomas for this. He, like, he didn't say, oh, no, no, Thomas, that's, you're, you're giving me too much um, credit here. Uh, God, uh, praise and honor goes to God alone. No, he lets it go. And in fact, Jesus' response is, now you believe. Now you get it. <laughs> this is what I've been saying the whole time, that I am God. Finally, now, now you believe it. Um, John 1, 2, uh, the very beginning of the gospel of John says, the word was God. Well, this word is Jesus uh, himself. We find that out later in uh, John 1 14 when it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, I'll talk more about the uh, John chapter one. I've preached a number of sermons on that text just on the first verses there. Uh, this past Christmas on Christmas day, actually the past three Christmases I've preached on that text. Um, if you want to hear more about it in detail. Um, okay, let's uh, move on. I want to talk about the 
about Jesus and the attributes and works of God. So uh, the Bible ascribes to Jesus the very attributes of God. The, the way, remember back in lesson um, two, we talked about the attributes of God, that he's eternal, that he's omnipotent, he's om- omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's unchanging, these sort of things. Well, as the scriptures describe that about God, about Yahweh, the scriptures also describe this uh, Jesus in the very, with the very same attributes. John 1 is, is remarkable. It is beautiful. Um, it's one of the most astounding texts I think we have in, in all of Scripture um, on, the, on the person of Christ. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is marvelous. In the beginning. Okay, so what does that mean? Um, verse 14 later says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, the Word is Jesus. This means that Jesus, the one who was walking around in Nazareth, in Galilee, in Bethlehem, all these places, that guy, that man, was in the beginning. This word was with God, and this word was also God. I mean, who is the only other person who was there in the beginning? Who was there at the beginning of the world? It's God. Well, Jesus, this guy who was walking around all of these places, was there too. And then the scriptures say that he was not only with God, he was also God. He is God. Uh, I've, I've preached on this quite a bit too, but uh, th- this doesn't make sense. Um, I can't be... I can't be Pastor Rojas and be with Pastor Rojas at the same time. I, that would be insane. That's, that's lunacy. That's crazy. Um, so that's a contradiction. And some people say, oh, no, well, John doesn't know what he's saying. He, he doesn't know his grammar very well. No, that's not true. John knows his grammar very well. It's one of the most beautifully written texts in all of, all of the Bible. Very well done. Um, but what this is saying is that uh, Jesus, who is the Word, was with God, that is someone separate or, or apart from the Father, and yet at the same time, he was one with the Father, one with God, uh, so that he is eternal and a creator of the world. So this is just what the Bible says. This is the way the Bible speaks of, of Jesus, that he was there at the beginning. Uh, Hebrews thirteen eight says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, that means he's unchanging. Uh, the only thing, the only uh, entity that doesn't change is God. Everything else is subject to change. I get older. You get older. Uh, things decay. Things change. God doesn't. And it's describing this unchanging character to Jesus himself, which is what we say of God. Uh, Matthew twenty eight twenty is amazing too. So this is Jesus uh, after the the crucifixion and resurrection right before his ascension he tells his disciples lo or behold i'm with you always even unto the end of the world or into the end of the age uh, you have to keep in mind jesus is speaking to these apostles who are about to go in many different directions throughout the whole world and Jesus says, I am with you always. This is his omnipresence. 
that the disciples all disperse and they go through, some go to India, some go to Rome, some, some go all over the place. And he says, I'm there. I'm with you always. This is his, his omnipresence. Uh, John 21, 17, they ascribe this to Jesus. They say, uh, Lord, you know all things. And there's other verses uh, in the text that, uh, in the scriptures that show this too. But you know all things. This is his omniscience. Um, Matthew 28, 18, at his ascension again, he says, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Uh, this is his omnipotence. All, not some power or most power. All power. Everything. He controls all things. Well, that, well who, who controls all things? God does. Well, Jesus is saying, I have that power. It's given to me um, in heaven and on earth. Uh, John 1, 3, again, going back to John chapter 1, it says, And all things were made by him, and there was nothing made uh, that was not made. Um, yeah, how, how does that text go? It says, um, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So uh, the point is that Jesus is the maker. He creates all things uh, and he created all things. You should listen to my sermon on, from Christmas uh, for 2021 this past year. Uh, I go into depth on that. I was sick that Sunday, so my voice is raspy, but um, you'll get through it. So uh, Hebrews 1.3, uh, it says that he upholds the universe uh, by his word of power. That is his omnipotence again. Now, this one's my favorite, uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. It says, the Son of Man, Jesus says, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Okay, well then, how, how is forgiveness an attribute of God? Because I can forgive, you can forgive, right? How is this an attribute of God? Uh, the, the thing is, we can sin against people who sin against us. Um, or we can forgive people who sin against us. But I can't forgive someone who sinned against someone else. Right? Um, so if, if two people are fighting, I can't forgive one person for the other person. If somebody sins against me, I can forgive you directly. But I can't jump in and, and forgive on behalf of another person. But Jesus went around forgiving people's sins. Everyone sins. How could he do this if they didn't sin against Jesus personally? Well, when they broke the Ten Commandments, they sinned against God. And if Jesus then goes around forgiving people's sins, it's because they sinned against God. It's because he is God and they sinned against him. Every sin is against Jesus. And so this is why Jesus has the power, the authority on earth to forgive sins. He can walk into uh, this room into my life, into any house in the world, any person. And you can say, I forgive you your sins against me. How? Well, because he is God. Because every sin is a sin against God. And therefore, Jesus is God. Um, okay, so the, the question then follows, well, what do we do with this information? John 5.23 uh, says this, that all men should honor the Son, that is Christ, even as, or just as, in the same way as, they honor the Father. So that whatever honor you would give the Father and glory and praise, 
that you would honor the sun in the same exact way, not in a lesser degree, not partially, not some of the time, but in the same way. Jesus goes on later to say, uh, I and my father are one. We'll talk about that as well. It's, it's beautiful. Um, he doesn't say we're one in purpose or one in will or one in power. The, the verb there is to be. It's conjugated. I and my father are. That is to be. We are one. In essentially, in substance. This is why in the creed we say, uh, being of one substance with the father. That's, that's the verse. Uh, I and my father are one. Uh, Philippians 2.10 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Um, again, the, the word Lord here is God. It's Adonai. It is uh, in, in Hebrew. This is the, um, uh, the, the name for, for Yahweh. In fact, when you read the Bible, when you read the, the Old Testament, whenever you see Lord capitalized in a smaller case or in, in a smaller uh, size font, so it, it's Lord, but it's smaller. It's a, it's a kind of a funny thing. Every time you see that, that's actually Yahweh. So whenever you see that name, Lord, capitalized like that, it's, it's in, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Um, okay, now I want to talk about uh, the incarnation of God. Uh, incarnation is two words, in, which is to, to, to be in this way, to be found in this form. And carne is, or is meat. So that God takes on meat or flesh. Or body. So we talked about this on when we talked about the attributes of God. God is spirit. But in the incarnation, God takes on a body. This is the season of Christmas. This is what Christmas is about. It's a season in the church that remembers and rejoices in the incarnation. Uh, and it is the incarnation of God himself. This, the scriptures say, is the central moment of all of history, the culmination of the, the pinnacle, the apex of all of history. Galatians 4, 4 says this, when the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So when everything was set up as the Lord had ordained and orchestrated at this moment, uh, God sent forth the son. So I, and I want you to understand it kind of like a, a, a ring, a diamond ring where you have the diamond and then you build the ring around it. The setting is pointing to the diamond. The, the main focus point in that in a wedding ring is the diamond. And so you set that first. You don't take the diamond and fit it to something. You fit everything else around that diamond, right? That's what a, a good jeweler does. Well, this is the same way with uh, with the incarnation of, of God. That is foundational. Ephesians 1 tells us that he had this planned before the foundation of the world. So this is foundational. Once he creates this, he ordains this, everything else flows to it or comes from it. Um, also, uh, Luke one thirty five says, the, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, this is the best translation I've found. 
the Holy One being conceived, present tense, right now, will be called the Son of God. So there's a a time in the church here that's nine months before Christmas. And we call that the Annunciation. It's Luke 135. It is the angel announcing to Mary that right now in this very moment, through the word of God that I'm speaking, the Holy One is being conceived in you at this very moment. And he will be called the Son of God. So this is why nine months before Christmas, uh, we have um, uh, in, in March, we have we celebrate the Annunciation. And then nine months later, we have Christmas um, in the church here. <clears throat> uh, Matthew 1, uh, 20. Or no, I read that, didn't I? Oh, no. Uh, Matthew 1, 20 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her, again, present tense, right now, is of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke 2, 7 says, She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So that's that's the birth of Christ. And uh, I, I'm not going to get into the details of the life of Christ, uh, just kind of the big highlights here. So we're going to talk about his incarnation, um, his crucifixion, his resurrection, um, uh, just to highlight that. Um, John 1.14, I'm going to share the screen so you could see this. I've referred to this a few times already. <clears throat> oh, here it is. One. 14 says, and the word that was in the beginning, that was with God, the word that was God, that made all things, all of this, that same word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the better translation, became. Uh, Some of them will say like was made flesh. It's not bad, but I think this is, uh, this is stronger. Became flesh. We have to be so precise here and understand what this is saying. It doesn't say the word took on flesh. It does say that at times, but that's not what this is saying. That's not what John 1 14 is saying. It's not saying that Jesus took on flesh because if Jesus, if God simply took on flesh, then he could also take it off uh, like a cloak. He just wears it for a time and then discards it. It doesn't say that. It, it also doesn't say he appeared as flesh. So that the word appeared, that God appeared to be flesh. If he appears as flesh, then he could disappear as flesh. Neither does it say the word changed into flesh. That's not what it's saying. That if, if the translation or if the word said the word changed into flesh and dwelt among us, this would mean that Jesus leaves that that God ref, uh, is no longer divine and rather changes, converts himself into only a human. So he abandons his divinity and takes on his humanity only. That's what it would mean if he changed into. But the word says he became flesh so that at the same time, while remaining true God, he then takes on flesh so that In the person of Jesus, you have full God, the one who created the world, remains God, 
And at the same time, he becomes man. He takes on a body. And it is once. And it is, uh, it remains forever. It doesn't put any time or expiration date on this. He takes on flesh, which means he becomes flesh, which means he remains flesh to all eternity. So that Jesus is, uh, still has his body. When we will see him, the angel said that we would see him return in the same way that we saw him go. At his ascension, he will come back in his body. That means everybody in heaven, every creature in heaven, uh, the angels, God, uh, uh, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, all of the saints who have died, they are all spirit waiting for the resurrection. But there is one person who is in heaven right now with his flesh, with his body, and that is Jesus. He never discarded that. He never got rid of that. It's, it's remarkable. We'll talk about that later too. Um, so I want to talk about the, the significance of the incarnation of God. What is the purpose of God becoming flesh? Well, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. That, and that, man, you should inscribe that into your heart in gold. That means, I know I've preached on this before that people will oftentimes say, well, Jesus is the reason for the season. They're referring to Christmas. Like the, the whole purpose of Christmas is Jesus. Well, not to Jesus. To Jesus, he says, no, the purpose of this season, the purpose of my incarnation is you. Uh, Luke 2, 11 says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So the, the very purpose of Christmas, the, the purpose of the incarnation was not just to have a feat, um, to, to do something miraculous just for the sake of doing it. He did this for our sake, for our benefit. Now, um, I want to move on and, and ask this question. Why is it? that our Savior became a man. Uh, we can go into this a long time, but I'll just give you the simple answer. Simply to be our substitute. That's why God became man. This is the purpose of the incarnation, to be our substitute. A human for a human. Animals, goats, bulls, lambs are sacrifices, but they are not substitutes. It is not an even exchange. Uh, Hebrews 10, 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. <laughs> so it, it, all of the lambs sacrificed in the Old Testament, they never touched sin. They, they couldn't take away sin. It was never an even exchange. Uh, to, to have a, 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 even the perfect lamb uh, sacrificed for a man, it's not even. Now, this is why God became man, is to be the perfect substitute. But why is it that our Savior had to be God? I want to show you Acts chapter 20, verse 28. This is a sermon that Paul gives to other pastors. Um, and he says these words in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves pastors and to all the flock 
that is to all Christians, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Meaning pastors don't make themselves pastors. The Holy Spirit makes them pastors. Overseers there is, um, uh, pass, is another word for pastor. And why did he do this? To care for the church of God. He says here, to care for the church of God. That's why God made you pastors. Which he obtained with his own blood. This is amazing. Uh, who? Who is the he referring to? The he is referring to God. God obtained the church with his own blood. Now, th- this is uh, such, this should cause us to leap for joy. Um, does God have blood? No, he's, he's a spirit. Does God have veins? Does he have a heart? Does he have flesh? No. <laughs> uh, and yet here uh, in Acts chapter 20, the way the scriptures speak, that God, that whose blood was shed on the cross? Not just a man, but God's blood. That's, that's how united these natures are between the human nature and the divine nature in the person of Christ. So that we could say, well, what blood is that? What blood is gushing out there and, and is on the cross and is on those nails right now? What, whose blood is that? That's the blood of God. <laughs> the, the thing needful was not human uh, blood, but divine blood and t- in order to purchase the church. Well, why is this? One, because only God could, could f- fulfill the law. Only he had the perfect blood to do it. But two, only God's blood could avail for everyone. So <clears throat> one human could take the place of one human. So if Jesus was only a man, he could substitute himself for perfectly one other man. <laughs> But that's it. That's the extent of it. He could take, he could save one of us. But um, one God could take the place of all humans. So it's necessary, we, 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 if we could speak this way, that God, that our Savior is both God and man. Why? That he's man, so he could take our place. Why? That he's God, so that he could take the place of the entire world, so that his blood would be sufficient for all. Um, okay. I want to uh, move on to a few things here. I think we could make it in these, uh, these final minutes. Um, the person and natures of Christ. When we talk about Christ, we're saying that he is one person. He's not multiple people or persons in one. He's one person, but he has two natures. And he's not only God and he's not only man but he is fully God and fully man while remaining one person. This is an article of faith. We simply accept what the scriptures say here, but I want to explain this and I want to tell you of the heresies. So the the problems when people have tried to describe and explain what's going on here in Christ, these are called Christological heresies. In other words, there are, it's false doctrine or errors taught about Jesus. And I have uh, four of them. The first one is saying that Jesus is only God. Uh, there's a fancy word for this in church history. This is called docetism. It comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem. 
And the idea is that Jesus only is, he is God, but he only appeared or seemed to be a man, kind of like a hologram. So that God is, uh, he's all powerful, but he puts up this little um, holographic image and everyone thinks and uh, imagines that this is a real man, but he's not really a man. Um, What's the problem with this? If someone only appears to be, someone who only appears to be human can't be a substitute for someone who is a human. So he couldn't be our substitute because he's not the same substance as we are. He's not the, the same kind as we are. He's God only. God can't die. God doesn't have blood. He has no blood to, to spill or shed. So this, this is one error that Jesus is only God. The second error is on the flip side, which is that Jesus is only a man. Uh, the fancy term for this is Ebionism. It's the idea that Jesus was not divine. He was not God of God. He was just a man. And we talked about the problem with this because a man could take the place of one man, but the death of one man is not sufficient to take the place of the world. So his blood is good for him or for another, but not for everyone. Um, the other uh, heresy, this is the third one, what do you think it is? Jesus is only God. Jesus is only man. The third one is a mixture. That Jesus was a mixture of God and man. Uh, the fancy word for this is Eutychianism. Uh, it was taught by a guy named Eutyches. Uh, this is a mixture and uh, he's a new substance. He's a new thing. So it, it's kind of like um, if you take red Play-Doh and blue Play-Doh, and then you mix them, uh, you get uh, purple Play-Doh, right? Okay, well, it's no longer red or blue. Now it's a new thing. Well, this is the problem. If Jesus is a mixture, if he's half God, half man, part God, part man, well, then he's not fully either of them, which means someone who is part man can't take the place of a full man. He can make substitute for part of me, but not all of me. I'm, I am a man. I'm, I'm fully human. But Jesus would not be human. He would be some hybrid or a new creature that's neither fully God, neither fully man. Um, okay, so that's the third one. The fourth one is this. Is, uh, this is a mixture. So we talked about one over here. Uh, God, only man, a mixture of the two. What do you think this fourth one is? Uh, it is a separation that Jesus is two persons, uh, not two natures, two persons. So this, the fancy word for this is Nestorianism. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Nestorius who taught this. The, the best example I could come up with is something like, uh, you, you've all heard of uh, conjoined twins uh, or Siamese twins, uh, they, where, where they have one body, uh, they have one um, yeah, one body, uh, and, but they're really two different persons, two different brains, but they have the same arms, the same legs, the same torso. They're sharing one body, but they're two different minds and people in that one body. Um, the problem with this, with this idea, so th that was the idea here is that in there, one person in Jesus, you have two things. You have a, a man and then you have a God occupying the same space and uh, they're 
they're separate in this way. Uh, they're very close together, but, but separate. So what, what's happening is that you'll have, um, uh, this is the man and he's living his life here, but then the divinity, the second, the, the, yeah, the divine person, the, the second person would then come down periodically. So he's just like skimming over the top through the life of Jesus. So, so he's a man when he's hungry, but then when he walks on water, boom, he comes down. Now it's the divine part. Oh, he's hungry again. He's crying. Uh, but now he feeds 5,000 there. So it's, it's kind of like the switch that's coming on and off. He's divine. He's human. Uh, so on and so forth, both in the same person flipping back and forth. Now, um, they were distinct enough. Uh, the problem here is that they're distinct enough that they could be separate. If Jesus has two persons living in his one body, then the question is this, which person died on the cross for me? Who really died on the cross? Who, who spilled his blood for me? And then Nestorius would answer, the man. That the person that was on the cross was the man. That the divine guy wasn't there. The divine person wasn't there. But the one spilling his blood was here. That's not how the scriptures speak. It says that God purchased the church with his own blood. So the divine person comes in and out of the life of Jesus. At one moment, it's Jesus, uh, uh, the man. At another moment, it's Jesus, the God. Then the question is, well, then who's with us now? Is it the divine person or the human person? And, and you have this problem. So this separates God and man uh, in, in Christ. Now, the truth is this, that Jesus is fully God, fully man, 100% God, 100% man. This means that everywhere that God, or everywhere that Jesus was, God was. This means... Who was in the womb of Mary? Who was conceived there? God. God himself was in the very womb of Mary. Who was placed into the manger? God. Both God, it was Christ. Who was God? Uh, who was in the temple? God. Who was on the boats? God. Who was on the water at the wedding at Cana? God. Who was on the cross? God. Who was in the tomb? God. Who resurrected? God. So that we have this union between God and man in the person of Christ. So that wherever you point to Jesus, you are pointing not only, uh, you're pointing fully to a man, but you're also pointing fully to God. Um, this is, this is yeah, astounding um, that he is united in this way. Uh, I want to move on to the life and death of Jesus and just skim this part. Uh, we have seasons of the church here, and I can't cover everything in the life of Jesus. He said a lot. There's a lot that deserves our attention and, and study. There's no way I, I, I can cover it in this class. But the purpose of the church here is to help us go through all of the things he said, or a lot of what he said. Um, so this is why we start with Advent, before he was born, Christmas when he was born, Epiphany when he started to do and show his works in the ministry, Lent, his suffering, Easter, his resurrection, uh, so on and so forth. So that through, throughout the year, we're learning as we go. What We're walking with Jesus in his life and observing all he did, all the things he said. Um, so that's where you're going to get the majority of what Jesus said is in church, 
is that's where we we learn about it the most. Uh, but I, I I want to talk about in the life of Christ uh, we learn about the obedience of Christ, and there's an active obedience and a passive obedience. Um, the active obedience of Christ is that he actively accomplished what we fail to do. So he's our substitute and he fulfills the law for us. So if, if the command was, hey, uh, pick up this big boulder, then um, Jesus steps in and says, I can do it. I'll pick up. So fulfill the law. Jesus steps in and says, I'll actively fulfill the law. That's the first kind of obedience. The other kind of obedience is passive obedience. And this is that Christ suffered the consequences for our failure as our substitute. Um, he, he suffered the punishment of the law that we deserved. So that you say, well, what do sinners deserve? Well, they deserve to die. Well, Jesus, he does both these things where he actively keeps the entire law perfectly. And at the same time, he suffers for the, the consequence, the consequence of the law, as if he never kept one commandment ever in his life. So that you see this discrepancy, this, it's, it's remarkable that one who is completely innocent suffers as one who is completely guilty on the cross. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about the cross here. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the holiest day in the church, in the church here, is Good Friday. Uh, some people will say it's Christmas, it's Easter. Um, they'll go back and forth. But the holiest day is Good Friday. This is the day Jesus died. Sadly, it's one of the least attended services. That's shameful. It shouldn't be. Um, and I, I don't understand when people go to church on Easter, but not on Good Friday. Say, well, you missed it. That was the point. I mean, these, this is one thing. It goes together. His crucifixion is his resurrection. Is, is the purpose of it is his resurrection. Um, but this goes together. And this is the holiest day. And a lot of people wonder why we call it Good Friday. We're saying, well, this is the awful. We see Christ die on the cross. So what's happening? Why are we calling it good? Well, we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment. Um, but Matthew 27, 46 says this, that while Jesus was on the cross, he cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Jesus suffered physical suffering. He endured physical suffering of the crucifixion. And that is awful. It is the one of the most excruciating pains. In fact, the word excruciating comes from that kind of death. Uh, X is out of and crooks or cruce is cross. It's the, the immense pain of dying on a cross. Uh, and you die in a cruciform and um, in, in a cruciform shape. And you actually die by suffocation, asphyxiation. So um, that's the method of dying. And it's painful. And yet, as painful as that crucifixion was, the physical suffering, it paled in comparison to the spiritual suffering of his soul. The agony that the Lord felt deep within his soul and his heart uh, in, in the, this anguish that is far beyond anything we could comprehend. What he suffered on the cross 
was hell itself. That is damnation to be forsaken by God. So that what we see on the cross is that the father forsook his son. Um, let me restart the recording here. Okay, so the, the father forsakes his son. We, we oftentimes think of hell as uh, the absence of God. That's not true. The scriptures don't speak that way. They say, even if I go to Sheol, yet, Lord, you are there, is the way the scriptures speak. So hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the presence of God, but the presence of God in his anger, which is worse than being, uh, th- than being in the absence of God. That means God is there in anger. He is there as an enemy. Um, well, uh, this is what we see on, on Good Friday, that God pours out, the Father pours out his anger, his wrath upon Jesus and forsakes him, right? He, he's there, but he's there in wrath, not as one who favors him, not as one, but one who just think, think of the cross like a lightning rod that you, you put at the top of a skyscraper or a building. Uh, the point is to attract lightning so that it doesn't strike anything else, but that it strikes that and says, let me take all the brunt of all of that energy. This is what's happening with Jesus on the cross. He is like a lightning bolt that is receiving the blow of damnation upon his own head, his innocent head from the father. Everything that God the father, that God is angry with, he poured out upon Jesus. Man, it's, it's incredible. So why do we call this good? What do we call this good Friday? Isaiah 53 verse 5. You should write this down. This is uh, so important. Just the entire chapter, all of Isaiah, but this section on the suffering servant is about Jesus, specifically about Jesus. It says, he, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And with his stripes, we are healed. That's with his wounds, with the, the, the tears in his flesh, we are healed. Here, Jesus saves us from our sin and our guilt and our punishment and our slavery. Uh, also in Isaiah, in, in the, those chapters, it says, it was the will of God to crush him. So God caused this to his son. It's not something that happened. He caused this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, to make us God's righteousness in him. Um, In other words, the way that sin, the the way that sinners deserve to be treated, think of the worst sinner you can possibly imagine, a murderer, uh, somebody who murders children, uh, somebody who has defiled people and done evil and wicked and filthy things. And then you think, man, that person needs to be uh, beaten up. They need to be tortured. They, that's too light of a punishment for such a person. And now magnify that for every person's sin in the world. You take that and you say, the way that person deserves to be treated is the way that Jesus was treated for us, 
for that person who did this and treated this way, not just by the world, but by God himself. Um, Second Timothy 1.10 says, our savior, Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light uh, that Jesus saves us from sin. He saves us from death here. First John 3.8 tells us the son of God appeared for the very purpose of undoing the devil's work. So we say that Jesus saved us from sin, from death, and from the devil. Um, I want to move on to the final point here, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Again, I'm, I know I'm glossing over a lot of things and skipping big things, but I want to talk mainly about the incarnation, the suffering and death of Christ, and then finally his resurrection. Uh, what you should do, maybe this is a good assignment, is go and read Luke 24. Uh, read the whole chapter. And then another thing, uh, if you decide to stick around at Zion, go to church during Holy Week. Go during Palm Sunday to Easter and you will see in action the very last week of Jesus' life and all he endures. It's, it's the best thing for a Christian to do. Uh, you should mark that off your calendar and say, I'm, I'm not going to miss those, those readings, that text. Um, the significance of the resurrection. Acts 2.24 says this. God raised him to life again, setting him free from the pangs of death because it could not be that death should keep him in its grip. So that God uh, raises Jesus from the dead. Um, Acts 10.40 says God raised him on the third day and made him appear uh, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as eyewitnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So that uh, Jesus appears to certain people, not everybody, but certain people after his resurrection. Um, We don't have time for this, and I would love to do this one day. There are a number of different theories that try to debunk the resurrection of Jesus and all of them fall flat. They, they don't hold up. Uh, if you take the bare minimum facts, I preached on that, uh, for Easter this year and a couple, uh, Easter's ago as well. But, but some of the theories are the hallucination theory that everybody who saw him was just having this hallucination, the swoon theory that he didn't really die, but he escaped the cross and ran away and got married somewhere. I think um, the Da Vinci Code um, talks about that. I think that's the the theory it holds to. Uh, There's the wrong tomb theory that everybody just went to an empty tomb and they're like, oh, I guess he's not here. He must have resurrected and went on their way. Um, So on and so forth. There's so many different theories. But when you take the bare minimum facts that all people accept that are historical, None of those things add up and make sense. And I wish we could have the time to go through it now. Um, but you can go online. There's videos. There's books. There's years worth of information on this. And it's, it's amazing. Um, I want to end with this. There are four things that the resurrection proves. Uh, the first thing is that it further proves that Jesus is the Son of God. Romans 1, 4 says, by being raised from the dead, he was proved to be the mighty son of God with the holy nature of God himself. So the proof of the empty tomb proves that Jesus then 
is who he said he was, that he is the son of God. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is that it further proves that all his teachings are true. Matthew 28, 6 says, he is risen, Jesus is risen, as he said. So, which means if we can have confidence uh, that what he said about his own death and resurrection is true, then we can have confidence that what he said about everything else is true. If he gives us the certain proof that his body is not there, the tomb was empty, and there's no explanation that's going to add up all of the facts in that way and tell us what happened, um, that, that he did leave us this proof that the tomb was empty, that he resurrected from the dead. If that is true, then everything else he said is true. So it further proves that all his teachings are true. Third, it proves that the Father has accepted Jesus' sacrifice for us. Romans 4.25 says this, Christ was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So that Christ was put to death for our sins, and we saw that. But he was raised for our justification, which is salvation, our forgiveness. That if the tomb is empty, then are your sins forgiven? Yes. Did, did God look upon that substitute, that sacrifice upon the cross and say, yes, I accept it. I will, I will accept this exchange. It's a massive exchange. I, you will have my son and I will have the world, right? Did the father accept that? And the answer is yes. That's what his resurrection proves. Um, finally, the fourth point is that it further proves that all who believe in Christ will have eternal life. Uh, John 14, 19 says, because I live, you shall also live. John eleven twenty five 25 says, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is beautiful. I want you to take time and read 1 Corinthians 15 when you have a chance. Um, I'll end with this. There was a, uh, a time, um, th- these ideas were going around that people found the tomb of Jesus. People said, oh, well, we found the tomb of Jesus and we found his bones. And all this. It, again, not true, didn't happen. And it's, uh, it, it, was, it was false. But uh, when that came out, the media started sensationalizing this and saying, look, 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 we found the tomb of Jesus. We found his bones. We, we found Jesus. Now, what does that do to your faith? So they went around and started interviewing people. And some people, some Christians were saying, um, they said, well, we found the tomb of Jesus. What does this do to you? And they say, well, nothing. I still believe in Jesus. Uh, even if we found the bones of Jesus tomorrow, I would still believe in, I would still be a Christian. And that is a stupid answer. That is the wrong answer. That it, Paul does not talk that way. No, Christian, no Christians uh, have spoken this way. 1 Corinthians 15 says, If Christ was not raised from the dead, then our teaching is in vain. And the whole thing, we're to be pitied above all men. We are the most sorry people in the world. We're wasting our time. It's, it's all for nothing. There is no solution to death. It's over and there, nothing good is going to come out of this. There's no purpose to life. There's no meaning. Death is, is uh, random and natural in a part of life. Nothing gets better. That's it. We're just dust. Um, so Paul says, if Christ didn't resurrect, we lose everything. And of all people, we are the worst. And the most, the, the, we sh- people should have compassion on us. 
but rather everything hinges upon the resurrection of Christ. This is foundational. Christianity stands or falls on whether that tomb was full or empty. That's, it all depends upon that. And it, again, go online. You can find videos on this. Just Google uh, something on like apologetics on the resurrection of Christ. You can find so many Christians. Every Christian, every genuine Christian uh, knows the significance of the resurrection of Christ. That's what it hinges upon. So um, <clears throat> do, do some research on that. And there's some really good stuff there. Um, again, uh, I wish we had time to go through it. We may uh, in the future if we, if we have some uh, openings. Um, and of course, you can always email me and I can send you links and some materials on that stuff too. So, all right. Well, let's um, thank you guys for joining. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer and then we'll uh, dismiss. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.